You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. In the 19th century, one Baptist professor had this to say about preaching. The great appointed means of spreading the good tidings of salvation through Christ is preaching. Words spoken, whether to the individual or to the assembly, and this nothing can supersede. Printing has become a mighty agency for good and for evil, and Christians should employ it with the utmost diligence and in every possible way for the spread of truth. But printing can never take the place of the living word. When a man who is apt in teaching, whose soul is on fire with the truth which he trusts has saved him and hopes will save others, speaks to his fellow men face to face, eye to eye, and electric sympathies flash to and fro between him and his hearers till they lift each other up higher and higher into the most intense thought and the most impassioned emotion, higher and yet higher, till they are borne as on chariots of fire above the world. When this happens, there is a power to move men, to influence character, life, destiny, such as no printed page can ever possess. Pastoral work is of immense importance, and all preachers should be diligent in performing it, but it cannot take the place of preaching, nor fully compensate for lack of power in the pulpit. Well, this was the exalted view of preaching taught by John Broadus, one of the founders in 1859 of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and the institution's second president. The quote is taken from his class lectures that became the book, a treatise, a treatise on the preparation and delivery of sermons, published in 1870. Now, Broadus died in 1895, but his influence is greatly felt today in pulpits all around the world. Indeed, Brian Chapel, in his book, Christ-Centered Preaching, calls Broadus the father of expository preaching. Now, all of these things and more make Broadus worthy of at least one episode of Bede. And to help us discuss him, we've enlisted the help of someone who's actually immersed in the writing of a full-scale Broadus biography. Well, Dr. Eric Smith is a colleague of ours, and we're so glad we could call him into this program. He's a colleague of ours at Southern Seminary, where he serves as Associate Professor of Church History, specializing in the history of American and Southern Baptists. He's written three books, most recently, John Leland, a Jeffersonian Baptist in Early America, published with Oxford uh, just this year. Now, as mentioned, Dr. Smith is currently working on a biography of John Broadus, a work that is greatly needed given the surprising lack of attention given him in the literature. Well, Dr. Smith, welcome to Bede. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a delight for me. Well, Michael, I, I know this is a program you've been looking forward to. You love John Broadus and uh, the impact he's made on the church. Uh, we're all indebted to him as we, the three of us, serve at 
the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And as I mentioned, he served as not only a founding uh, member of the faculty, but also the second president. I think it was 1889 when he became president. Uh, but we want to turn the attention on you, uh, Eric, because you are immersed in a biography of Broadus, and it's projected to be about 120,000 words. So that's that's no mere booklet. This is a full-scale biography of Broadus. And as I mentioned earlier, I think it's really needed. There's been, uh, I mean, really since A.T. Robertson, I don't think there's been a biographical work, some chapters and things we can talk about what's been done with Broadus. But I uh, thought I'd open this way by asking you, help us situate Broadus in the 19th century as far as American Baptist life, and tell us what led you to write such a massive volume on John Broadus. Sure. Well, thanks so much for asking. So Broadus was born in Virginia, Culpeper County in 1827. And he comes of age really at the time that the Southern Baptist Convention is formed, 1845. So you can kind of track uh, the progression of uh, Broadus's career along with those early years of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's kind of there uh, on the ground floor. And he uh, lives and ministers in Virginia. He attends the University of Virginia and receives about as fine of uh, an academic education as was available to a Southerner in the late 1840s at the University of Virginia. He receives a master's degree, a master of arts, which would kind of like the the PhD uh, at that time. So it's unusual for a Baptist in the South to be educated to that level. So he's, he's a very cultivated, sophisticated kind of a guy. Sometimes well, Broadus is often compared, especially in our circles at Southern Seminary, with his uh, contemporary and co-laborer James P. Boyce. And we can kind of think of Boyce as being sort of the, uh, the aristocratic uh, Charlestonian, and that's certainly true. But then we cast Broadus as uh, sort of this blue-collar man, and he wasn't really that. I mean, he he did grow up in a, an agricultural area, but he was a very cultivated man. He, um, you know, he was fluent in, in German and French, and he was a Greek scholar. Um, after graduating from the University of Virginia, he had many different offers, uh, both to preach and to teach, and he ended up accepting a dual role in Charlottesville to teach at the University of Virginia to teach Greek. He assisted his father-in-law, Gessner Harrison, who was a, a gifted linguist, a famous linguist at that time. So that's what he was doing at the university, but then he was the pastor of the Charlottesville Baptist Church, and he, that's what he did for most of the 1850s. Um, at, at various points, uh, Broadus uh, discovered that he his frail frame could not endure this nonstop workload that he that his ambition kept driving him to, and so he was like a really little guy. He was doing good to weigh 130 pounds, and he may have had something like Crohn's disease. He just had some uh, very serious digestive issues, and when he would overdo it, and when he wouldn't watch what he would eat, it would put him in a sick bed, and he would have to miss, you know, months of work. It was very, it could be very debilitating. So he would give up one or the other, whether pastoring or teaching or. Um, or, or or the other um, at different points in his career. And so throughout the 1850s, he's either pastoring that church or teaching at the University of Virginia, or he's serving as the chaplain of the University of Virginia. So kind of an interdenominational role that was considered an honor for a Baptist. And then he finds his great life work at the end of the 1850s when he helps to found the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, one of four founders. He's the, the architect of the curriculum 
uh, what was unique about the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, among other things, is um, it was the first central seminary for Baptist in the South. Before that, Baptists would have to go to a, either a Pado-Baptist seminary or to a seminary in the North, and that was becoming less palatable in the 1850s for theological reasons and cultural reasons. So it's a central seminary in the South, but it was also both a school designed to educate Baptists of all backgrounds. So Baptists believe in kind of the um, democratization of the Holy Spirit and calling men to preach. So you didn't have to have a university degree to be called as a preacher. And so they said, we don't want to have a seminary that only accepts people with university degrees. So they would accept anyone from any background and they could uh, take just one or two courses, or they could take the the full uh, menu of courses, but they believed that while they had any preacher, they wanted to train him up and equip him better uh, for the ministry of the word. So they wanted to have that kind of school, but they also wanted to have a school that trained what boys called a band of scholars. They, they wanted to raise up uh, men who were equipped to engage scholarship at the highest level. Uh, they didn't want Baptists in the South and in America to be dependent on um, uh, scholars from overseas, many of whom had questionable doctrinal views about the nature of the scriptures and that sort of thing. So they had this really ambitious plan, and John Bross was an ambitious guy, and throughout his life, he would confess to uh, having this drive to want to be something and to make his mark on the world and to do something significant, and I think that he found that in giving himself to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So they found it, 1859. He's a uh, professor of homiletics and of New Testament, then the Civil War breaks out, and so they uh, get one really good semester in, a second kind of limping along uh, type term in, and then have to suspend for the course of the war. Um, and that really launches, brought us, without going into all the details, uh, into just decades of gritty uh, determination to keep the seminary alive, mm -hmm. doing whatever he had to do. Go ahead. Yeah, please. Well, Eric, let me tell you, I, I want to, before we get to the, uh, to that, which is what a story in of itself, let me back up and ask you if you know, and, and Michael, if you know, how did Broadus get pulled into this? How was he one of the founding four? Did he know Boyce or how did he get wind of the, the idea? I think it was Boyce that had the, the original idea, but how it, was he recruited? Did he go to them and say, I want to be a part of this? Do you know anything about the backstory? Sure. So some of the denominational leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention for, for decades, since at least 1835, had been calling for the Central Seminary in the South, led by people like Basil Manley Sr., R.B.C. Howell, um, who's also from Virginia, but spent a lot of time in Nashville. Um, and some of these very um, denominationally minded uh, pastors had been wanting the seminary, but they had lacked a, a leader that could um, pull all these uh, disparate factions uh, in the convention together and offer a compelling vision. They finally found that in James P. Boyce, who's like 29 years old when he's pitching this vision uh, for the seminary. And Basil Manley Sr., who's sort of the, the patriarch of the convention at that point, he appoints this committee, this very youthful committee um, that included Boyce, Broadus, uh, William Williams of Georgia, his own son, Basil Manley Jr. of Richmond, um, and uh, E.T. Winkler of Charleston. Uh, he appointed them to serve on this committee that um, essentially uh, laid out the blueprint uh, for what the seminary would be. And everyone sort of knew that Basil Manley Sr. envisioned that little committee being the, the founding faculty. And so Broadus doesn't go seeking it. 
it does uh, come seeking him, but it was it's kind of natural. He's young and dynamic. He's this beloved preacher, but also a really respected scholar. And so it was sort of a natural choice that he would get pulled into that. Interesting. And then, well, then the war hits. Okay, so back to the, the, the narrative. A civil war hits. The seminary had just started. How did it make it? I mean, go ahead. Sure. So those are those are starvation years for uh, the faculty, broadest pastors, uh, four country churches uh, through the course of the war, preaches at one each Sunday just out in the country of South Carolina. The seminary was originally located in Greenville, South Carolina. So he'll travel sometimes 70 miles to go minister to a, a rural congregation. Uh, when this, when this, uh, on the other side of the war, there's a question of can the seminary make it? Should the seminary make it? The South is in ruins. Uh, if there's any money left over to support Baptist education, the Baptists are most likely going to support the colleges of their particular states. So like a, a Furman or a, or Georgetown or a, a union, something like that. Um, and they all get together and they're deciding, are we going to suspend? Are we going to go find other jobs that would be more stable and lucrative and all that kind of thing? And Broadus gives what I think is really the defining quote of his life. He looks at the other professors and said, let's all quietly agree that the seminary may die, but we will die first. And I think for the rest of his life, he lives by that and ultimately does die by that in 1895. I think that he uh, makes a conscious decision to subordinate uh, his um, career ambitions, uh, his uh, opportunities to make more money and to live at greater ease, um, opportunities to be more at home with his family and so forth in order just to make the seminary live. He often drives himself to a sickbed by uh, working so hard, not only in the classroom, but fundraising uh, when he wasn't teaching all over the country. Um, and we could say a lot more about Broadus, but that's that's basically what he spends the rest of his life doing uh, until his death in 1895, is giving his life so that the seminary could live. And uh, it really is a remarkable story. And you allude to this, Eric, but am I correct? He, he turned down the presidency at Brown University. That's right. Uh, That's right. Very prominent churches that he could have given his work to. So that would have you know, obviously paid a lot more than he was doing. So when you say he gave his life to this, uh, you're not kidding. I mean, That's right. And you may have heard of a rather wealthy Baptist at that time named John D. Rockefeller. He was really interested in Broadus being a part of that original University of Chicago, this great research uh, institution being founded in the latter portion of the 19th century. Uh, Broadus was coveted for that faculty and for leadership positions. He could have had any pulpit, north or south. He had this remarkable rapport with both northerners and southerners after the war. Many people saw him as kind of this bridge builder. Uh, some people call him the interpreter. He could interpret the south to the north and the north to the south. And um, I mean, looking back, we, we would see many problems with some of his views and, um, and uh, wouldn't agree with all the ways that he uh, communicated uh, Southern values. But nevertheless, he was recognized and welcomed and uh, celebrated on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line, really unlike any other figure that I'm aware of uh, during this period. And it's inter interesting, Eric, you brought up earlier that even though he was raised on a farm, I think Culpeper, uh, you mentioned Culpeper County, was That's it called? That's right. Okay, in Virginia. But if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think he, he was fluent, I've read, in 11 languages. I mean, you mentioned German and French, but he was obviously very bright. Um, right. New Testament scholar, I think he wrote a, a har or he wrote a commentary on Matthew, I think it was, and, um, and, and other works. He did the Beecher lectures 
at Yale University in, I think, the 1880s, would that have been? Uh, in eight, right in 1889. That's exactly right. Okay. okay. Which was no small thing to be exactly. invited to do the, the Beecher lectures at Yale. Uh, and so the list goes on. But just to make your, your point still more clear to our listeners, uh, uh, an incredible man as far as uh, giftedness, uh, intellect, and here he was giving his life uh, to theological education. Yeah. Michael, what was your first uh, introduction to Broadus? I mean, when did you first run into Broadus and all your work with Baptists? Was he early on in your uh, in your work? Or uh, no, I don't think so. Um, you know, it might have even been Broadus Chapel <laughs> at Southern. Yes, we do have a chapel. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I, actually, I don't think it was that. I think it must have been um, his commentary on Matthew um, and that. So I'm, I'm interested. So uh, when was the last major biography of Broadus done? How many biographies, major biographies have there been done on Broadus? So you asked about why I was drawn to Broadus. There are lots of reasons. But one is that I'm not always real confident that uh, I could write a biography that would compete with someone else's. And so I'm always looking for those people who haven't been covered. I love that word lacuna. I just learned it a few years ago, but I really rely on it now. So I'm always looking for a big lacuna. And uh, there's not a modern biography of Broadus. So his son-in-law, A.T. Robertson, the next great Southern Baptist, Greeks and New Testament scholar, he put together um, a kind of a, a life and letters of his father-in-law. That's a tremendously helpful resource, but it's also quite celebratory, as you could imagine, um, appropriately so for a son-in-law. Uh, and in about 2007, 2008, um, Dr. David Dockery and uh, Roger Duke co-edited a volume uh, that was um, an appreciation of various aspects of Broadus's life and ministry. But uh, but it was an edited volume, so there's there's been no uh, full critical biography of Broadus really ever written. And so I'm going to give it a shot. Okay, so it's been about a hundred years since. Uh... Uh, A.T. Robertson's. It's like 1906, Robertson. something like that. So over 100 years. Wow. Yes, sir. So it's more, than, more than 100 years. Okay. So obviously A.T. Robertson's uh, biography is vital in terms of, here's a man who knew Bro uh, Broadus intimately, knew him as a father-in-law, uh, has a number of primary sources in there. Uh, what other archival uh, archival deposits are there that you would you'd need to go to? We have a tremendous uh, resource in the James P. Boyce Centennial Library on the campus of Southern Seminary. So uh, many, many, I mean, a remarkable number of letters written to Broadus. It's incredible that he got anything done just with the amount of correspondence that he dealt with from the time that he was in his early 20s. But it seems like he kept all of those letters. And so I've spent a good bit of time in there with those documents, uh, lots of his uh, lecture notes, uh, sermon notes, uh, his like his day book, kind of some of his personal uh, memoranda of things that he did at various points in his career. So there's a there's a robust archive uh, just right there at Southern would be sort of the mother load. Um, and then there are um, uh, various collections scattered across the country. Like one example would be um, at uh, the Yale uh, Library. Uh, he had a long running friendship um, with. Uh, not A.H. Strong. Help me out, Dr. Haken. He was a Baptist at Newton Theological Seminary. Sorry. <laughs> oh, <not> no. <laughs> There's just been a, a super uh, biography written of this brother, and it's not strong. I can't believe that I'm, I'm blanking on that. But anyway, so um, 
he's got maybe 30 letters written to this friend, this correspondent. Wow. Um, that's there at Yale. And so you find a little uh, deposits like that here and there. I'll come up with that name here in just a second. So, I mean, the one in all, uh, Southern is obvious. I mean, there's, it's going to be obvious that there's a, a large amount there. But from that point, given the fact, I mean, I sure, I'm sure A.T. Robertson didn't list, or did he, where these deposits are. Um, so how did you begin then the process? Like, you, you know, you're, we're thinking here about actually, you know, the nuts and bolts of doing a biography. So how do you actually begin that? Once you've, okay, you've landed on, you've got a lacuna. There's nobody, nobody's done a modern critical biography for well over a hundred years or whatever. Um, and, uh, so an obvious place to go is Southern, but from that point, where do you go then? How did you, how did you discover Yale? Sure. So I just start thinking about people that he is interacting with, people that I know are friends or peers, and then I start looking for places that might hold hold their letters. Um, so, for instance, he was very close with Basil Manley Sr. and Basil Manley Jr. So the, there's a, a Manley family collection um, at the University of Alabama, at the Southern Baptist Historical Library and Ar Archives in Nashville. So, And then just that archives specifically um, the one the denominations um, historical library there in Nashville is a great resource and uh, those uh, folks are so helpful when you tell them there's someone you're interested in researching uh, they're uh, more than willing is, to is help he, Eric, you get would you agree that I, I think one of the yeah. things we do when we're trying to think of who to write on not only is there a, a gap in the literature I mean there's a real need for it but I like to think of libraries where would I get to visit? Right. So I want to think that's right. I, I want to I want to study somebody that may has the archives in London. I'd like to go there or or New England. I mean, I, I think you're wise to to target Yale. I mean, let's be honest. That's the real reason you're doing broadest. So yeah. To to yeah. Libraries. There you go. That's cool stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to see the University of Virginia and the Blue Ridge Mountains and all those kinds of things. Of course. I wanted to ask you in the letters. This is something I, I wonder if our listeners would be thinking, what might have stood out to you in the letters? I mean, such that generation, just so prolific in their writing. As you get to know him a little bit, are there any things that are consistent in his letter writing, his personability, all those, you know, He's anything stand out? He's very warm and personable. He, uh, I think, makes friends easily and, and keeps friends faithfully. Uh, the correspondence with Boyce would be the, the premier example, they just had such a unique friendship and partnership over decades from the end of the 1850s until Boyce's death in 1888. And so uh, 30 years of working as just the closest of companions, sharing and suffering together, making sacrifices uh, together and seeing this dream that they shared uh, come into being. And so they, uh, have this extensive correspondence and uh, that's a lot of fun uh, to watch that uh, unfold through the years this intimate friendship between uh, co-laborers like that and then also seeing uh, not only how they're so similar but also the ways that they're different and the um, the different circles that they were comfortable moving in the different ways that they would approach um, various problems that would arise I, I love seeing their personalities come alive but but brought us was uh, very warm very uh, congenial, easy to get along with. Um, he had a, a wide range of relationships. Sometimes that got him in trouble because he was uh, willing to um, mix with and even 
I won't say do ministry with, but maybe share a platform with, like say at a conference with those who were to the theological left of him in the 1870s and 80s when so much of the theological ground was, was shifting under the feet of American Baptists and, and other American Protestant denominations. And so he has correspondence with people like William Rainey Harper, who's kind of the arch liberal Baptist at the end of the 19th century and that, that first president of the University of Chicago. Um, I, don't, I don't see Boyce um, swapping letters with William Rainey Harper, but uh, Broadus did that. He did. <laughs> and they, did. they respected one another's um, just intellect and academic rigor, but Broadus was also uh, forthright about how far he was uh, willing to go um, in his, um, you know, critical analysis of, of the scriptures and was clear about his theological admissions. Broadus always landed in the right place. Um, even if the company he kept on the way sometimes made some of his friends, uh, a little bit nervous. Had a warm relationship with Crawford Howell Toy. Obviously that's a, um, there's a major controversy at the seminary, um, as, as Toy moved, um, to uh, uh, an unacceptable position on the inerrancy of Scripture. Ross was clear on where he landed with that, but he maintained a warm uh, relationship with Toy even after he he left. Eric and Michael, I'd love to hear from both of you on this one. When I think of uh, taking up subjects in a biography that were, could I say, even more than sympathetic to, I think it's fair to say we're all sympathetic to Broadus, uh, but how, how do you avoid hagiography on the one hand but then um, also critical biography, but still with sympathy. I mean, how, how do you, maybe both of you could speak that. You've written so much uh, biography. How do you walk that fine line? Yeah, I mean, A.T. Uh, Robertson, is, you said it was yeah. a celebratory biography. Um, <laughs> you're writing a critical biography. What do you mean by critical there? Um, and how do you, how do you maintain... Um, a critical stance, yet at the same time maintain a degree of sympathy. Sure. So it would be silly to pretend that I'm completely objective. Um, I'm a two-time graduate of Southern Seminary. I now teach at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm a Southern Baptist preacher. Uh, I, I read Broadus's books. I appreciate so much about him and his theological convictions and the things that he accomplished. So, of course, I'm not purely objective, but I, I do want to... Um, maintain some kind of critical distance just so that I can rightly evaluate his life with its strengths and its weaknesses uh, for the purpose of growing in wisdom. Um, so I'm my day job is I'm a pastor, so I preach a couple times every week and handle a lot of biblical narratives that get into the details of the biographies of uh, men and women of the people of God throughout the ages. And I'm preaching through 2 Samuel right now. And I'm just struck over and over again at how the Bible handles the biographies of great men and women with whom we're clearly supposed to identify and learn from and appreciate. And yet um, the Bible is not insecure about um, letting us know about the, the flaws and, and foibles and weaknesses and sins of even the, the greatest men and women of God that we might learn from them. Um, but we might learn from their mistakes. And then we might also see that at the end of the day, no matter how great whether it's King David or John A. Broadus or whoever it is, uh, the star of the story is the Lord Jesus Christ who gives grace to sinners and uses uh, weak people um, in spite of their sinfulness. And uh, to me, that's what really makes the, the grace of the gospel shine is when we're not afraid to 
see a, a whole picture of a, of a man or woman striving to walk with God and, and yet failing, um, we can say even here, uh, the Lord is able to use people like that, which means maybe he can even use me. And I find that encouraging. So not a cynical hit piece kind of thing where I'm just trying to expose all the ugly stuff just for the sake of, uh, of doing so. Um, but I do want, I need an honest portrait of a real life because I'm living a real life and I need to know how to walk with God and to trust him. Uh, today. So that's that's kind of how I think about it. What do you think is the most difficult thing for you as you write uh, the biography of Broadus in 2022 in the United States? Uh, what is the most difficult issue or issues that you have to wrestle with in writing a biography uh, of such a figure? Well, just in general, what I find the most challenging is um, situ being careful to situate the figure in their historical cultural context, which which requires uh, getting familiar with the secondary literature that that teaches me about what the Whigs in Virginia believed. John Bross's dad was like a, a Whig legislature in Virginia during the age of Jackson. Well, I've got to learn all about these Southern Whigs because that uh, teaches me about Edmund Bross's perspective on life and how that shaped John. So just kind of in general, I find um, giving um, sufficient, adequate uh, attention to secondary sources that takes up a lot of time. It's challenging, but it's also a lot of fun because I'm, I'm learning a lot. And then with Broadus uh, specifically, um, a, a couple of issues that have been uh, challenging, but again, it keeps me coming back uh, to the project is um, trying to understand how he thought about um, not only slavery, that's, that's fairly straightforward and what he thought about that, but then how, um, how he encouraged Southern Baptists to move forward on the other side of the Civil War and Reconstruction, how he um, processed the role of um, Black Americans in Southern society. Um, he, he does it in ways that we would find um, unacceptable, and um, we would say he, he, uh, he didn't see the whole picture. He had blind spots and, and so forth, but he's still uh, working through this really tumultuous uh, cultural moment. So um, learning about those things and trying to evaluate them fairly, that's, that's been a challenge. Uh, and then his relationship, like I said, in this, this shifting theological ground of biblical scholarship in the 1870s and 80s. So on the one hand, like from in 2022, it all seems so clear, you know, there were the, the conservatives and the liberals or whatever, the people who we would say got it right in their views of scripture and the ones who got it wrong. But at the time, I mean, it's all changing so fast and they've got relationships with real people on both sides of the aisle. And it's, it was complex in the way that they navigated those kinds of things. And so it's been, uh, it's been challenging to figure out sort of where brought us lands and what he's thinking all the time in the midst of those controversies. But it's also, it's really fascinating. It's really helpful. Um, so, you, yeah, you're, so you're wrestling with uh, both the social cultural context that he has to deal with, and then also the, the whole area of biblical scholarship, both of which are uh, really huge subjects. Um, he was a Southerner and lived through the Civil War. He obviously, I assume, prayed for the South's victory, which didn't happen. Uh, what, what kind of... Um, uh, what was his attitude after the war? Like, how did he deal with the defeat of the South? It's a great question. He was not a fire eater. He was not chomping at the bit for the South or the Southern states to secede. Um, many of the people around him in Greenville, South Carolina were, but he's, he's a Virginian. 
and he he regretted very much secession. But then once it happened, he felt that his primary loyalty was to his state and, and not to the federal government, which he believed was a creation of the states. And so from that point on, he said, it's it's pointless uh, to fight against secession. It's, it's what we've got. And I'm going to do my duty as a citizen here. That's the way that he and his brother, um, James Madison, brought us would talk to each other. Just reading a letter this morning where they talked about bearing the humiliation of secession. We didn't want this to happen, but now we've got it. And, and so from that point forward, he does. He prays for uh, the, the victory of the South. Uh, he ministers to Confederate troops. He writes evangelistic and pastoral tracts uh, for soldiers in the camp. He spends uh, several months uh, with the Army of Northern Virginia leading revival meetings, uh, basically. So he's very involved. But on the other side of it, I don't, this Bryce is unique here. And I think this is one of the more interesting elements of his story. I don't think that he he buys into this full scale um, lost cause mythology where he's always looking back to this ideal, um, perfect old South and uh, um, trying to trying to recapture that and always trying to valorize the, the Robert E. Lee's and the Stonewall Jacksons. I mean, he he never stopped being a, a very happy and proud Southerner. But I think he couldn't afford to to look back. He was trying to keep that seminary alive. And to do that, he was going to have to raise money with Northern Baptist. And so I think he was a realist. And he would, because of his situation, his calling, and he believed his life calling was to make that seminary live, he couldn't afford to be this uh, just fire-breathing, lost cause advocate. Um, he had to look ahead. And so that's been one of the the challenges, but one of the the really interesting research questions for me is, um, you know, how, do we characterize him as like a, a new South Southerner, um, a lost cause Southerner? And I don't think that you can fit him real easily in some broad category like that. I think that he was doing what he had to do to make that seminary live and to keep it going. And uh, nobody was more effective at promoting the seminary to Northerners or to Southerners then brought us and you had to walk kind of a delicate line to do that because you couldn't betray couldn't betray the south when you're in the north and uh you couldn't uh or, or and you can't do the opposite either <laughs> and so brought us was skilled in uh being able to uh, communicate the value of the seminary to whatever crowd I mean, uh, yeah, just very quickly uh just bottom line i mean an a biography like this is so important Eric, uh, all three recently, of us have an enormous we, we, debt to oh, brought go, us. Go ahead, Michael. Uh, for staying the course, yep. uh, for giving his life's work to the seminary. We, we, we wouldn't have that school to teach at. And uh, uh, it, it's very helpful to think, you know, okay, so we may be critical of him in, in certain areas of his social perspectives. But yeah, in, the, in, in this other area, we are so indebted. Absolutely. I have no problem saying that. I like it. I like how you said, Eric, I, I heard recently something I think I've always known, but it was summed up really well. It's, it's up to politicians and media folks to make things very simple. It's up to the historian to make it appropriately complex. And so where you say you can't fit Broadus cleanly into just one or the other post-Civil War, I think that's not just you trying to make it complex. I think that's, that's more true to the, to the facts. It's, it's nuanced, and that's what, what real life is like. Well, friends, I, I wish we had more time. I'm looking at the clock and, and I'm realizing how quickly our time together goes. I thought it might be appropriate to end with, uh, you had alluded to uh, 
his his time obviously it, it, we didn't allude to it we talked about his time at southern there's there's a story and and eric i'm sure this will make it into your biography if it hasn't already and it's at robertson who communicates his story and his his uh a tribute to his father-in-law but it, it it takes us into it's a window into his last day of class at southern seminary and you might recall this it was a student that relays the story so here's broadus in his last class with a student recalling his words. So uh, I read from this, I quote, young gentlemen, so this is, this is broadest to his students. Young gentlemen, if this were the last time I should ever be permitted to address you, I would feel amply repaid for consuming the whole hour in endeavoring to impress upon you these two things, true piety and like Apollos, to be men mighty in the scriptures. Then pausing, he stood for a moment with his piercing eye fixed upon us and repeated over and over again in that slow but wonderful, impressive style peculiar to himself, mighty in the scriptures, mighty in the scriptures, until the whole class seemed to be lifted through him into a sacred nearness to the master. That picture of him as he stood there at that moment can never be obliterated from my mind. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people.